You don't really need to know, but probably should. I'm Kira Revan, and this, this is the Sunday Seven. On today's episode, we explore a world under the sea. There are warnings of a hotter world, and parrots get to grips with video calls. But first, it was on this day in 1932, after flying for 17 hours from Newfoundland, Amelia Earhart lands near Londonderry, Northern Ireland, completing the first transatlantic solo flight by a woman. The first baby created from three genetic parents has been born in the UK. It might sound like sci-fi, but the breakthrough is aimed at preventing children being born with incurable and potentially fatal mitochondrial disorders. The treatment uses tissue from the eggs of healthy female donors to create embryos free from harmful mutations. These embryos carry DNA from the biological parents plus a small amount of mitochondria from the donor's egg. Tom Clark, Sky Science and Technology Editor, explained it like this. Essentially what you're doing here is taking a fertilised egg from a mother who has is carrying mitochondria, so these little organs that are essentially the power packs, the batteries that live in all of our cells of our body, the, the power our biology, they're defective. Um, fortunately, they sit outside of the nucleus which contains all of the DNA that makes you and I like we are. So the way this technique works is you take the nucleus, that, which contains the mum and dad's jet information, what the baby will, will inherit, what GTF inherits, but leaves those the diseased mitochondria behind and you pop that into an empty egg from a donor that's had its nucleus removed, but it has those healthy mitochondria in it. So you pop that in there, that's the third parent bit. But actually, only 99 point, sorry, less 99.8 of the DNA in that egg is from mum and dad. It's only a tiny fraction of genetic material that's contained in those mitochondria that's passed on. Alongside the celebration of groundbreaking treatment, there's also the matter of ethics. This is Sarah Norcross, Director of the Progress Educational Trust, an independent charity for people affected by infertility and genetic conditions. It's very important to not shy away from the tough ethical issues but to talk about them and so in the run-up to the law being changed in 2015 there was a lot of discussion there was public consultation there were lots of meetings lots of people put out lots of resources so the public could really engage with the issue what is important as well to think about is that this is a question of reproductive choice for people no one would force someone in Liz's situation to say you must go down this line this is something you've got to do that's not the answer for everybody. For some people, remaining child-free would be you know, something that they would rather do, adopting or using egg donation. So there are other options that are available to them as well as this one. The first child born using the technique was in 2016, so future health is the key question on everyone's mind. Before, you know, we don't want to count our chickens, and we hope everything is okay. Um, the, the whole programme at Newcastle was based around follow-up, careful follow-up of those babies. And of course, in the UK, we're in the fortunate position that we have a, a dedicated regulator that looks at fertility treatment and embryo research mm. who will be monitoring this. After spending 74 days below the surface, an American explorer has broken the world record for living underwater, and he's not ending his subaquatic lifestyle just yet. 
Joseph Dettori is a diver and medical researcher. Right now he's living at the Jules Undersea Hotel and is on a mission to stay there for a full 100 days. The idea here is to populate the world's oceans, to take care of the world's oceans by living in them and really treating them well. The wreckage is a small bump and we love it and I really appreciate it. I'm honored to have it, but we still have more science to do. The science doesn't stop here. After almost 100 days under the sea, there's one big noticeable absence in his life. So the thing that I miss most about being on the surface is literally the sun. The sun has been a major factor in my life. I usually go to the gym at five and then I come back out and I watch the sun rise. Alongside his record-breaking, Dottori is studying how the human body responds to long-term exposure to extreme pressure, all while teaching his biomedical engineering class online. Nobody's truly looked at blood while it's been underwater with the decompression particles in it. So we're bringing a 2,000 times microscope down here. We're going to look at the blood. We're going to pull blood. I'm doing it uh, six times while I'm down here. Uh, you know, there's urine, there's saliva. You know, we're checking all kinds of things. Everything we need is on this planet. Everything we need is here. We have the yin, we have the yang. We have the disease, we have the cure. We just need to look where we've never looked before. So. Basically, that has been my push for the last, you know, 10, 15 years. Dottori hopes this research will continue to aid future deep-sea marine missions. Still to come on the Sunday 7, all new images of the Titanic and Twitter has a new chief in charge. Heading back underwater, brand new images of the Titanic reveal unprecedented views of the shipwreck and may shed new light on how the iconic liner sank more than a century ago. The first ever full-size digital scan of Titanic's wreckage has been developed using deep-sea mapping. The disaster, which has been immortalised in popular culture through documentaries, books and a Hollywood blockbuster, killed more than 1,500 people on board, roughly 70% of the ship's passengers and crew. It currently rests 12,500 feet below water on the floor of the Atlantic Ocean. Park Stevenson, an expert Titanic analyst, says the full-size digital scan will help piece together the ship's last events. We've seen Titanic for a century now, but we've seen it through interpretation by any number of people throughout the past century. Now we are finally getting to see Titanic without human interpretation derived directly from evidence and data, which is what we really need in order to piece what I would call this crime scene together. Whenever you're trying to, to, uh, to evaluate a crime scene, every piece of evidence has to be left undisturbed and has to be in its exact place and its exact condition in order to figure out what happened. While the Titanic has been examined in detail since the wreck was discovered in 1985, the sheer size of the ship has meant that prior to the digital scan, cameras had only ever been able to capture the decaying wreckage in snapshots. Small submersibles, boats remotely controlled by a team on board a specialist ship, spent more than 200 hours analysing the entirety of the wreck. The team took more than 700,000 pictures from every angle, creating an exact 3D reconstruction of the boat. Stevenson spoke with BBC Radio 4 about the new scans and host Nick Robinson asked the question we're all dying to know. Why exactly do we care whether the Titanic sank this way or that way? As an engineer, it's it's unanswered questions. That, that defines my whole interest in Titanic. And also as a historian, 
I'm always wanting to get to the truth. And I've seen enough in my years of studying Titanic that I am suspicious of the narrative that we've become accustomed to over the past century. I, I basically question whether or not Titanic hit the iceberg along the side, as we've all come to accept nowadays. Uh, I'm seeing a growing amount of evidence in recent years that suggests that Titanic actually grounded, ran over a submerged shelf of the iceberg, which was the first scenario proposed back in April 1912, but soon got buried under this you know, 300-foot gash torn out of the bottom, and then that turned into the, the bumping along the side that we, we've all seen today. So there is still much to learn from the wreck, which is essentially the last surviving eyewitness to the disaster. She has stories to tell. It's been a while since we last chatted about Twitter and a lot has been happening on the Bird app. Twitter released its first version of encrypted DMs, Musk announced they're purging old accounts and freeing up desired usernames. But the biggest update is about Twitter's new CEO. After weeks of speculation, it turns out the rumours are true. Elon Musk has chosen NBCU leader Linda Yaccarino as the next CEO. To find out more about the person steering the sinking ship that is Twitter, we caught up with tech journalist Will Guyatt for details. So who is Linda and what do we know about her background? So Linda Yaccarino is quite a successful uh, leader of online and digital media companies from a kind of business and commercial perspective. Um, she's been hugely successful at NBC Universal in turning around that business, uh, making it make some money through its kind of digital media assets, uh, increasing its online revenues significantly. In terms of who is she, she was described in an interview the other day as MAGA through and through. So very pro-Trump, which seems to play into the world of Elon Musk and the kind of views that he'd want. So she seems the kind of person that Elon Musk would probably like to chat to at a party. And that's probably one of the reasons why he's hired her for this job because i think they're not their their views of the world are not diametrically opposed how does her background fit in with elon musk's vision for twitter it's going to be interesting to see where the platform goes because i think if there's going to be any kind of split now because elon musk despite hiring a new ceo isn't going anywhere he's still going to be interfering he's still going to be making all the noise and he's probably going to be doing all of the late night tweets talking about what's going on on the platform but what she's there for is to uh, get more commercial deals uh, try and shore up the platform financially while Elon Musk says he's going to go off and do kind of all of the tech stuff because he's still got this vision and nobody else yet really knows what this is that um, Twitter will become the core of X the does everything app and his idea is like with apps you get in China like WeChat which started as a chat app but now essentially you can do your shopping in it you can have a bank account you can order food to your home you can do your social media you can pretty much do everything in this one app he's suggesting that he's going to do something similar and make uh, Twitter part of X, which is going to become the app that we're all apparently going to use. Once Yaccarino takes over, what will Musk's role be? Will he still be calling the shots? 
Well, it's very interesting in that Elon Musk certainly likes to be seen to be calling the shots, certainly likes to be the one making the news, trying to be bombastic. You know, the last year or so since he announced the intention to buy it, I don't think there hasn't been a day that's gone past when Twitter hasn't been in the press and he fired the PR team as soon as he purchased the company. Uh, And that's as a measure of him knowing how to keep this thing in the press. But if you look at his other company, Tesla, or one of his other companies, Tesla, um, there's been some stories stories recently which have come out in the US which suggests that the chief financial officer at Tesla has been the one that's been making the company particularly successful over the last few years have been doing that very quietly behind the scenes letting Musk take all of the credit so it's going to be interesting to see what happens here I don't think we're going to see massive clashes between the two of them I think Elon's chosen uh, Linda Yaccarino specifically because he knows they won't fall out in the first five minutes do you think she'll be able to course correct and make Twitter great again well I think Elon Musk desperately hopes that Linda Yaccarino can return to Twitter to some form of greatness but Judging on its performance, the growing amount of outages from tech problems, uh, problems around safety on the platform, given the fact he's fired all of the staff that kept us safe. Um, I can't currently see there being some kind of massive resurgent return to form for Twitter. But maybe if he does get to launch X, the app that does everything, and Twitter's part of it, maybe it might help. So coming the Sunday 7, the largest cosmic explosion ever witnessed, and pirates get up to speed with Zoom calls. Right after this. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Sunday 7. Follow us for your weekday news espresso. Or maybe try our UK edition. It's all in the usual places. What started as an unremarkable flicker in the night sky has turned into the largest cosmic explosion ever witnessed. The flare-up is more than 10 times brighter than any known supernova and has so far lasted more than three years, making it the most energetic explosion on record. Scientists at Southampton University say they came across it by accident and believe the explosion could have happened 8 billion light-years away. This is Philip Wiseman, an astrophysicist at the University of Southampton. That means this has happened more than half the age of the universe ago. So when you know how far away it is and we can see how bright it looks to us, that tells you how bright it must be or must have been there at at the real location. 
The explosion was first detected in 2020 in California, but the event initially did not stand out. When follow-up observations allowed its distance to be calculated, astronomers realized that they had captured an incredibly rare event. The fireball, 100 times the size of the solar system, is thought to have been caused by gas being sucked into a supermassive black hole. A giant cloud of material far bigger than a, a normal star that is being shredded by or partially shredded by the black hole and that shredding is sending some kind of shock through the rest of the cloud. We don't have very good um, data on that part of the universe because it's just so far away that everything there is so faint. But if there is a galaxy um, any larger than kind of our own Milky Way there, then we would have seen it in our in our pre pre-existing images, but but we don't see it. So that's confusing and we're going to have to point bigger and more sensitive telescopes once the explosion fades away to try and understand what is what the environment is in that part of the universe. For the first time ever, global temperatures are now more likely than not to breach 1.5 degrees Celsius within the next five years, as according to the World Meteorological Organization. Petri Talas is the WMO Secretary General. There's a 66% chance that we would exceed 1.5 degrees during the coming, coming five years. And, uh, and there's 33% probability that we would uh, see the whole coming five years uh, exceeding, exceeding that uh, threshold 1.5 degrees, which is, uh, of course, not very likely to happen. One thing that boosts the chances of hitting the infamous 1.5 degrees is an El Nino weather pattern expected in the coming months. This happens when warmer waters in the tropical Pacific will heat the atmosphere above and push up global temperatures. Leon Hermeson is the lead author of the WMO report. The ocean is a vast reservoir of heat, so most of the extra heat that goes into the climate system um, from the greenhouse, the greenhouse gases trapping heat goes into the ocean. And sometimes, and this is what happens in an El Nino, um, the temperatures warm up in the East Tropical Pacific and gives us a very warm temperatures that then are transmitted into the atmosphere and it generally warms up the globe. According to the WMO report, we have a 98% chance that one year in the next five will be the hottest ever recorded. Adam Scaife is a Met Office physicist and shared his thoughts with the BBC. That's never happened before in terms of a, a yearly average global temperature. So we are heading into unprecedented territory to temperatures we simply haven't experienced before and the impacts will be equally unprecedented. According to new research, parrots are meeting new pals through video conversations. Researchers from Northeastern University, MIT and the University of Glasgow wanted to find out if parrots could use technology to communicate. Through their work, they were able to teach a group of them how to video call one another using Facebook Messenger. The same researchers recently discussed their findings in conversations with Seven News. This is Elena Hersky-Douglas from the University of Glasgow. 
we are increasingly having more and more smart technology, if you want to call it this, in our homes. And these are sort of seeping into the animals that we share our home with lives. The pirates would first ring a bell to request a call. Then their caretakers would present them with a tablet featuring pictures of powered friends who were available to select. The birds could then use their beaks to interact with the screen and talk to another bird. Researchers observed a number of factors and found natural behaviour in their video encounters. Here is Jennifer Cunha from Northeastern University. What the other bird would do, they would do singing back and forth. So there were a lot of natural behaviours that we saw between the two birds, even though there's a screen between them. So it appeared that the parrots understood that a real bird was on the other end of the line. Many of the pets made feathered friends they would repeatedly select for calls. Researchers say the study is just the next step towards creating ways for pets to communicate. This has been the Sunday 7. However you're listening, do us a favour and hit the follow button. We'll be back tomorrow at 7am with a regular Smart 7 Ireland edition. Have a great rest of the weekend. Hi, this is Kira from the Smart 7 Ireland edition. Just to let you know, we're pausing this podcast from Friday the 25th of August, but you can still get up to speed in just seven minutes if you search the Smart 7 and catch up with our UK edition. Thanks for listening.